All right, we are back. We received here at Radio Parallax a correspondence a couple days ago from a longtime listener who got quite a kick out of our closing last program <laughs> with the outro music, one bourbon, one scotch, one beer. It uh, fit quite well with what we had been talking about, and I had to agree that I thought it worked. He said, that was a good show you did last week. The show the week before was, was also good, but last week's show was even better. Now, a couple weeks ago, you did a show that I would say wasn't quite as good as the other two, although I still think it was a pretty good show. I think he was probably right on all counts. We do what we can here on this program on a weekly basis to try and inform and entertain. And sometimes if our mood is down, we may be a little less entertaining than we ought to be. This is why Mr. McMillan likes to point out that one bourbon, one scotch, and one beer before listening to Radio Parallax might, might improve matters. But you know, the truth of the matter is that doing the best you can, some things are just going to turn out better than others. And we've mused on this program on many occasions how it is that, you know, weeks, months, years down the road, going back and listening to a given program will result in different responses. And we're afraid of the fact that sometimes when we're stuck in the news of the day, it'll look pretty silly 10 years down the road. And we hope people do pull up the show and listen to this or that show 10 years down the road. Case in point, I played for my friends who were visiting uh, one of our programs from 2009, that interview with Jay Rankin, and, and they enjoyed it, and, and I enjoyed it. It, it. it stands up pretty well, I think. And this causes me to note, dear listener, that if you never caught that particular program, well, you can find it at radioparallax.com. Thankfully, over the years, we've gotten very few negative remarks from you, the public. It may be that sometimes we are our own worst critics. But you know, the truth is, it's, it's good to be critical, and it's good to have critics. Although Groucho Marx famously once remarked that he didn't understand why they had to have critics out there. Critics that would come along and say, well, your last movie was good, but it certainly wasn't as good as the movie before that. Groucho pointed out that, like, farmers don't have to put up with that. People generally don't come along and say, now, Farmer Jones's corn this year was pretty good, but it certainly didn't compare to last year's corn. So thinking about this, I decided to pull out a volume off the bookshelf. In this case, it is The People's Almanac Number no. 3 by David Walachinsky and Irving Wallace. We were privileged to have Mr. Walachinsky on this program some years back. His uh, three People's Almanacs are all pretty darn good, containing lots of interesting facts and, uh, and figures and people and analyses, etc., etc. Chapter 11 was titled It's an Art, and it was a look at great works of art which were greeted by bad reviews. I think a few of these are worth going through. Let's start with Herman Melville's Moby Dick. Moby Dick was written in 1851. It's the story, as you no doubt well know, my dear listener, of a demented sea captain's obsession with finding and killing the great white whale that ate his leg years before. It is, moreover, an immense parable of human life and the quest for identity. The authors note that at the time, Moby Dick got mixed reviews. And on the whole, they were disappointing to Herman Melville. The critics were particularly annoyed by Melville's departures from the standard structures of novel writing. All the following excerpts are from reviews that appeared unsigned. From the London Morning Chronicle, raving and rhapsodizing in chapter after chapter, sheer moonstruck lunacy. 
from the Southern Quarterly Review. Aside from the parts where the whale is directly involved, the book is sad stuff, dull and dreary or ridiculous. Melvers Quakers are the wretchedest dolts and drivelers, and his mad captain is a monstrous bore. From the Athenaeum, the openings of this wild book contain some graphic descriptions of dreariness, such as we do not remember to have met with before in maritime literature. But in the view of history, Moby Dick is considered Melville's great masterpiece, an adventure tale, parable, and innovative novel. Moby Dick has taken such a permanent place in the body of American literature that it has been required reading for several generations of students. How about Manet's Olympia? French praetor Edouard Manet completed Olympia in 1863, and it was exhibited at the Salon of 1865. It depicts an elegant and reclining nude. Her face turned toward the viewer. Behind her is a black servant holding a bouquet of flowers. On her bed, a black cat. At the time, the showing of Olympia caused an outburst of angry public opinion and critical scorn. Manet's use of color and tone was unusual, which bothered the critics. But far worse was the moral threat his art seemed to pose to society. As George Hamilton has observed, Olympia was obviously naked rather than conventionally nude. Further, her head was not averted to indicate she was ashamed, and she was clearly no wood nymph being chased by a satyr. Always an acceptable presentation of a nude. Wrote Felix Jaher, Such indecency! It seems to me that Olympia could have been hung at a height out of range of the eye. Jaher got his wish because Olympia was eventually moved. The review in L'Artiste was also scathing. I know not where who represents Olympia. Olympia? What Olympia? A courtesan, no doubt. But in the verdict of history, Manet, now fully acknowledged as one of the greatest artists of the 19th century, considered Olympia his masterpiece, and it hangs today in a place of honor in the Louvre. And finally from the cinema, we have Buster Keaton's The General. Known as the great stone face of silent films, Buster Keaton directed, starred in, and edited The General. It was first shown in 1926 and put into general release in 1927. This Civil War comedy was expensive to make, containing what was probably the most costly single take in cinematic history at the time, a $42,000 shot of a bridge collapsing and a train on it falling into a river. Buster Keaton considered the general his pet, and although he never admitted it, he must have been sorely disappointed by the film's critical and box office failures. Norbert Lusk wrote in Picture Play Charm that the general was a one-man show, a mistake in a picture lasting over an hour. Mordaunt Hall, a regular New York Times critic, found the general inferior to Keaton's previous work. <laughs> Not his previous corn crop, we note, but his previous work, saying Keaton had bitten off more than he could chew. The film might be described as a mixture of cast iron and jelly. The Herald Tribune dismissed it as long and tedious, the least funny thing Buster Keaton has ever done. In the view of history, the general is regarded as an extraordinary film, groundbreaking. The film has variously been called the best work of cinematic genius, the silent screen's best, and the first film comedy of epic proportions. In the 50 years since The General was made, it has become a piece of American folklore. In a poll taken by Sight and Sound magazine in 1972, The General was voted one of the 10 greatest films of all time. Anyway, we, we know not what verdict history will bestow upon our efforts here at Radio Parallax, but we can always hope that one or two of the things we've done along the way will someday be regarded as classics on some level. Eh, we hope so. Mr. Malone would like to add that although Babe Ruth did hit 714 home runs, he also struck out 1,300 times. All right, 
I feel like making a trip back into Silicon Valley. In this case, San Jose, which likes to consider itself the de facto capital of Silicon Valley. It is California's third largest city, Northern California's largest city, easily, and thus the most populous town in the Bay Area, of which Silicon Valley is a small part. As part of its still continuing effort to convince the world that it's trying to make it a better place, the good folks down in Silicon Valley are tackling all sorts of aspects of modern life, including energy generation. My attention was drawn to an op-ed in the Bay Area Times by Anthony R. Kovsek. Maybe it's Kovchek, I'm not sure. The good doctor is evidently a professor of energy resources engineering at Stanford University and a senior fellow at Stanford's Precourt Institute of Energy. Down in San Jose, they're toying with the idea of banning natural gas as a means of heating as an antidote to climate change. Professor Kovacek notes that on a sunny summer day, California's solar farms, rooftop installations, and wind provide roughly 50% electrical energy consumed at noon. But at midnight, the fraction of energy provided by renewables drops to about 20%. With the setting of the sun, solar electricity is replaced principally by natural gas-fired electricity. The flexibility and fast response of natural gas power plants has enabled the rise of renewables, of which we are rightly proud in California by providing necessary backup and power to stabilize our grid. The professor notes that before deciding that it would be good for the environment to ban access to natural gas, consider the carbon dioxide emissions associated with a shower outside of hours of substantial sunlight, typically 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. A natural gas water heater produces about 0.1 pounds of CO2 per gallon of water heated. The exact value depends on the efficiency of the heater. Instead, if we use an electric water heater, there's a very good chance that we use electricity from a natural gas power plant. We need to consider the carbon implications of the energy transformations taking place before water is ultimately heated in our homes. The fleet of natural gas power plants supplying California is about 40% efficient. For a conventional electric hot water heater that uses electricity directly for heating, about 0.3 pounds of carbon dioxide are created per gallon of water heated. Thus, making electricity from natural gas and then using electricity to heat water for an early morning shower produces roughly three times as much CO2 as using natural gas directly. He notes, importantly, most natural gas water heaters are immune from electricity shutoffs and outages. Anyway, he has a lot to say in this article and closes by noting that without belaboring the point, analysis of many components of residential energy consumption, including space heating and clothes drying, suggests that consideration of the time of day is important to understand the carbon implications of the choice of heating. We need to question critically whether... Banning new natural gas hookups actually reduces carbon dioxide emissions as natural gas will continue to be used just in a more inefficient way. The piece notes that San Jose Mayor Sam Licardo voted in favor of the city becoming the largest city in the United States to create an ordinance banning natural gas from new single-family homes, low-rise multifamily buildings, and detached granny flats beginning next year. Well, I just got to say, that seems pretty dumb to me for the reasons outlined by Professor Kovchek. And in a couple of miscellaneous items, which we're fond of here in the show, we have, well, these two anyway. A NASA astronaut 
confounded election officials in his hometown in Pennsylvania by listing his whereabouts on an absentee ballot application as International Space Station, Low Earth Orbit. Yes, evidently Ed Allison, a voting official in Lawrence County, said his reaction upon reading Drew Morgan's application was, What? But he said he then started to get calls from NASA and resolved, We have to get this done. In the end, Morgan filled out a ballot and electronically transmitted it to Earth. Well, that seems pretty fair, doesn't it? We don't think here at Radio Parallax that you should lose your right to vote just because you've gone up to the International Space Station. Thank God they found a tech solution to that problem. And here's an item from China that we have our doubts about, but we like it, so we're going to go with it anyway. According to The Week, an exasperated mother in China suffered a heart attack after repeatedly and unsuccessfully attempting to help her nine-year-old with his math homework. The woman, surnamed Wang, said, I explained it to him many times, but he still didn't get it. I was so angry that I could explode. Suffering from shortness of breath and palpitations, she was rushed to the hospital and was treated for a heart attack. Reportedly, a Dr. Yang Zhuozhui said she caught it in time. If there'd been any delay, she could have suffered from heart failure. As alluded to on this program, former Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced last week he will run to reclaim his old Senate seat. Sessions is banking on his ability to overcome the months of scorn President Trump heaped upon him for before forcing him out. Wouldn't you know it, Sessions' first campaign ad emphasized his unwavering support for Donald Trump. Did I write a tell-all book? No. Did I go on CNN and attack the president? Nope. Trump, who was furious at his attorney general for recusing himself from the Russia probe, called the appointment his biggest mistake as president, saying Sessions was, quote, a dumb southerner, unquote, who, quote, should be ashamed of himself, unquote. Here's the part I like. A poll this last week showed that 71% of Alabama Republicans still view Jeff Sessions favorably. You have to wonder why, <laughs> after, after, after Trump scorns him and calls him a dumb Southerner, but says, I, you know, I didn't hurt the president. And in a third item from the miscellaneous file, we have this. Hillary Clinton this past week joined many UK politicians in criticizing Prime Minister Boris Johnson's decision to sit on a report about Russian interference in British politics, including the 2016 Brexit referendum and the 2017 election. The 50-page dossier was produced after an investigation by Parliament's Intelligence and Security Committee, and intelligence agencies have cleared it for release. But Boris Johnson said it needed additional vetting and would not be made public until after Britain's December 12th election. Clinton, in the UK for a book tour, called the decision inexplicable and shameful. The Sunday Times reported the dossier names nine wealthy Russians who have donated generously to Boris Johnson's Conservative Party. You don't suppose that's why they're keeping it under wraps, do you? And in an item involving China and Russia, and how's that for a segue, we have this. Marina Bocharova, writing in the Russian publication Commerçant, notes that the Chinese are running a shadow hospitality industry inside Russia. Some 1.25 million Chinese visited Russia last year, and they outspent every other nationality, dropping more than $500 million in the first three months of 2018 alone. But wouldn't you know it, only 40% of that money is declared to the Russian state, because most Chinese tourists buy their nesting dolls and other souvenirs from secretive Chinese-owned shops that are closed to the public. 
They pay for their tchotchkes using Chinese apps like WeChat Pay and Alipay, so the transactions bypass Russian taxes. The system works like this. Cut price on registered Chinese guides ferry busloads of Chinese tourists to specific sites in Moscow and St. Petersburg, showing them the ballet, the hermitage, Red Square, and so on, and crowding out Russian tourists. Then, they take them to unlicensed Chinese shops where the unsuspecting tourists overpay for purportedly Russian jewelry. The shops give the guides a cut of the profits. Some tour operators control their customers' entire stay in Russia, ensuring that the hotels they sleep in and the restaurants they eat in are also Chinese-owned. One thing we feel like doing on this show on a regular basis is skipping our review of what's in the news at present and reading from some literature. By literature, I mean the broadest sense of that word. One example might be that little piece we did just a moment ago from the People's Almanac number three. And since we're in a People's Almanac kind of mode, I think I'm going to go to the, the original People's Almanac by David Wallachinsky and Irvin Wallace. This entertaining volume was, pers- was first published in 1975. Some of the items in it are as fresh as today's headlines. There was a tragic headline in the news last week about a group of Mormons down in Mexico who were... Well, they were assaulted and numerous members were killed as part of the drug wars going on in sunny Mexico. I'm sure it surprised some people to know that there are Mormon colonies south of the border. And they are a bit of a curiosity, so I'm going to excerpt from a chapter about them from the People's Almanac. Now, the article concerns itself with Mormon polygamists who are in Mexico I'm not sure whether this group that suffered the attack were what are considered renegade Mormons still practicing polygamy. There are splinter groups that do so in Utah. I know that. The group in Mexico may have been, but I I really don't know. But noted the People's Almanac. The Mormons, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, had either fled or been violently expelled from New York State, Missouri, Ohio, and Illinois. Once they had made the incredibly difficult traverse from eastern Nebraska to the Great Salt Lake, they thought themselves safe. Not so. Congress passed three laws forbidding polygamy, a practice which was sacred to the Mormons, though only a small percentage of them could afford to indulge in it. The first two laws, the Morrill Act of 1862 and the Poland Bill of 1874, were not very strong. In general, they left enforcement and punishment to local officers and juries, which meant, in effect, that Mormons judged other Mormons for being good Mormons. But in 1882, the Edmonds Act had gnawing, tearing teeth. For every day that a Mormon man cohabited with more than one wife, he'd be, he could be in prison for five years and fined $500. The Edmonds Act, they note, was probably unconstitutional, interfering as it did with the right to worship, guaranteed by the First Amendment. But the times were Victorian, and Utah, the Mormons called it Desiree, was not a state nor were other western territories as yet, except Nevada, where the Mormon population was large enough to merit political consideration. Every state had two senators, and the loss of two votes in the Senate is important to politicians today. When the Senate was three-quarters its present size, those two votes mattered even more. Since 1875, Mormon missionaries had been considering the possibility of seeking freedom from persecution by moving to Mexico. 
As harassment grew worse, church leaders studied the reports on Mexico with mounting interest. And finally, in March of 1885, 25 families headed south for the border. The following months, the numbers swelled until 350 saints were camped south of the border, while their leaders negotiated to buy Mexican land. Finally, about 150,000 acres in the Piedras Verdes Valley, a little more than 100 miles south of Columbus, New Mexico, were turned over to the Mormons, and they had their new home. Porfirio Diaz, president of New Mexico, had been in office since 1877 and would continue to rule, if not as president, then by controlling whomever he had made president, until 1910. Diaz believed not only in foreign capital, but in foreign ways, whether European or American, and he admired the Mormons' Yankee-type industry. But under Diaz, more and more lands passed into the hands of a few hacendados landowners who were frequently not even Mexican citizens. Publisher William Randolph Hearst owned enough Mexican land to make San Simeon seem the size of a weekend camp. In 1910, the Mexican peasants, who had become mere slaves or peons, began to rebel. Francisco Madero, the liberal son of a rich liquor distilling family, headed a revolution. Porfirio Diaz was overthrown, sent into exile, and civil war engulfed all Mexico. The Mormon settlers, against the advice of church leaders in both Utah and Mexico City, were inclined to side with the conservatives rather than remain neutral. They had done well under Diaz, and the Mormon philosophy of hard work and hard ambition and hard land titles did not agree with the Maderist Mexican policy. Under their policy, a man and his family were given what land they needed rather than what they could acquire. The Mormons were also to have some brushes with Pancho Villa, also vying for power in Mexico. By 1912, a local Mexican general told the Mormon stake president, Junius Romney, that the Mormons must hand over the large supply of weapons and ammunitions that had been, they'd been storing in case of trouble. Romney stalled, despite the fact that flat car mounted artillery was trained on their colony. Romney went into council with his people and decided to turn over some, but not all, and certainly not the best of their guns to the rebels. In this way, they tried to gain time to get their multiple wives of each family out of the colonias and out of Mexico. So it was that in July of 1912, the Mormons fled. Mormon women, like refugees in every war, were ill-prepared for a hasty departure. They took with them what they valued the most, which was not necessarily things they most needed on a trip across the Chihuahuan Desert. They arrived in El Paso thirsty, hungry, and poorly clad. Ironically, the Mormon church petitioned the U.S. government to aid these refugees. The government issued tents and food and offered to provide train tickets for any of the Mexican Mormons who had friends or relatives they could join. But they'd been in Mexico for 24 years, and ties were broken. Few of the women had places to go. Meanwhile, the Mormon men, still back in the colonia, were not having it easy. Their leader, Junius Romney, decided to get out of Mexico. Once back in the United States, the colonists did not find life easy. Weeks after arriving in America, 35 of them decided to go back. Others drifted after them, and by 1917, the Mormon colonias were again populated. When General Pershing chased Pancho Villa back across the Mexican border, the Mormons were very helpful to General Pershing, and when he left, there was justifiable fear of Mexican reprisals. In fact, a General Salazar rode into their colonia, and told the saints that all their able-bodied men would either join his Mexican army or be shot. He added they would not only have to fight against the Mexican Federalistas, but also against U.S. troops in reprisal for Pershing's interference. 
A Bishop Bentley, who had succeeded Junius Romney as president, thought over Salazar's demands, and then he made a short speech. Mormons, he said, were peaceful men who devoted their lives to working and to educating their children. They did not wage war. If Salazar wanted to shoot them for that, let him do so. Bentley was a small man, and quite possibly his spunk tickled Salazar's Mexican sense of humor. At any rate, the last great threat against the colonistas had been avoided. So it is that a colony of Mormons in Mexico persisted to this very day. It's noted that both Mormon boys and girls are usually sent back to the States for college. Brigham Young University and the University of Utah are, of course, favored. But now some of the youngsters complete their education in other states or even in Mexico City, and all are bilingual. It is interesting, as we close this little piece, to note that some of the descendants of this colony became quite successful in America. One of them, George Romney, became governor of Michigan and was considered a presidential candidate for a while back in the 1960s. And it is his son, Mitt Romney, who is currently a senator from Utah. You no doubt recall Romney running for president, which he did back in 2012. An aspect of this that I find somewhat amusing is that George Romney was born in Mexico, which would have excluded him from becoming president of the United States. This little factoid was carefully hidden from the public back in 1968 when he was being weighed as possible presidential timber. In the two minutes we have left in this program, uh, I would note that one thing, one diss we have yet to receive and hope that we do not, is, quote, okay, boomer, unquote. This phrase began as an internet meme but has since grown into a global phenomenon. It has become... Reportedly, a, quote, rallying cry for millions of fed-up kids, unquote, who are disgusted that baby boomers are leaving them a world plagued by climate change, mounting debt, unaffordable housing, and income inequality. Anyone over 50 can now expect to hear this dismissive response anytime they say something condescending about young people and the issues that matter to them. In rebuttal to this, a Stephen Quazzo, writing the New York Post, said, Millennials, Gen X, and Gen Z love to whine about how their complacent elders bequeath them a rotten America and a rotten world. But if they actually studied history, you know, the kind that can't easily be found on iPhones, they discovered that boomers were and remain the most socially and environmentally conscious generation America has ever known. We boomers transformed the society our parents left us by championing feminism, civil rights, gay rights, and the environmental movement. Boomers also invented the digital world and gadgets without which youngsters, quote, couldn't get out of bed, unquote. And yes, I can just hear a millennial responding to Mr. Quazzo with, okay, Boomer. Bloomberg.com weighed in by noting that as generational sneers go, okay, Boomer is not very creative. It certainly lacks the vitality and rebellious spirit of the 1960s or 1970s when my generation took to the streets. Well, I have to say, I'm not sure how much of the world we were able to change in a favorable way. But to quote the fictional psychiatric inmate Randall Patrick McMurphy from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, I would note that at least we tried. People try to put us to death. Just because we get around Talking about my generation Things ain't do look awful Talking about my generation I hope I die before
before I get old. Talking about does it for the program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. You have been listening to Radio Parallax. Our thanks to travel agent extraordinaire, Mr. Stan Godwin. I'm Douglas Everett, talking a bit about my generation. Well, friendly, we're going to redouble our efforts to see what we can do to bridge that gap between millennials, Generation X, Generation Z, and baby boomers. And while we're at it, my parents' generation, the greatest generation. We'll see you next week. What we all sensation. Talking about my generation.